Uh, we're going to be talking this morning about uh, the disruptive love of Jesus. So you've seen, uh, you've seen the imagery, it's up on the screen this morning. You've seen the banners uh, uh, that are hanging, they're absolutely beautiful with the, with the seal there for the, for the O. I had a disruptive moment uh, earlier this week. I was walking through the sanctuary with a buddy and I was kind of showing him what we were doing and I pointed out the, I uh, pointed out the banner above and I said, you know, look at that disruptive love. And he goes, oh, you're copying off of Maker's Mark Bourbon. <laughs> that wasn't really disruptive. That was disturbing. So, so uh, uh, no, we're not. But uh, when you think about things that disrupt your life, they could be very simple and they could be funny or they could be very serious uh, and, and very profound. So I, I was thinking about this notion of disruptive this week, and I, and I found some images. Uh, here's an image that's very disruptive. Everything about that image shouts, never go back to 1981, <laughs> no matter what you do, because that was actually a very popular look back in the day. Uh, sometimes you're disrupted when you have a plan, and it's perfect, and it's organized, and it's going to work, but the people around you do not cooperate. That Christmas card would have been so great if those three children had understood their role in that process. And then sometimes there's a disruptive moment that just is morally wrong and just should never happen. <laughs> we have a couple of, of Cubs fans at Green Tree, and I don't even know why they're still here, because I pick on the Cubs all the time. There's just something about that that, you know, if you're from St. Louis, it just kind of makes you cringe. But then there actually are disruptive moments that are profound and they actually cause us to stop. Uh, they, they may not completely take our breath away, but it, it, it's a moment where you say, you know, there's something deeper. There's something more profound in the world. And that's what we want to talk about this morning because even if, if you take faith out of it, if, if you set aside the scriptures for just a moment and you just talk about love, love is a disruptive thing. If you've ever been in love with someone else and you're describing that experience, perhaps uh, you know, it, you've met and you've spent some time and you've, you've dated a little bit and you've gotten to know each other, and now it's like, man, this is the person for me. How do we describe that? We say we've what? We've fallen in love. No, we don't say we're rising in love. We say we've fallen in love. We say things like, I've been smitten. Oh, your heart is beating an irregular heartbeat that if it keeps going, isn't going to be all that good for you. Your palms get really, really sweaty. Your finances are absolutely disruptive when you, when you fall in love. So just in and of itself, uh, love can be a game changer for us. But then you come to the love of Jesus, and you come to what scriptures say about the love of Jesus. Not what people say about the love. What I say about the love of Jesus is irrelevant. What scripture says about Jesus is everything, and his love is a disruptive love. It's probably the most seriously disruptive love that's ever been evident on our planet. The love of Jesus disrupts the lie that you and I are unloved and that we're just kind of in a cold, calculated universe that just kind of keeps on spinning, but we aren't really ultimately loved by, by any greater being than ourselves. The love of Jesus disrupts the idea that, that we're unwanted, and that we're alone. So many of us work so hard to not feel alone. And even when we're surrounded uh, by those that we love, we still feel that emptiness inside. And we, we tend to believe the lie that, that maybe I, I really ultimately am alone. 
The love of Jesus disrupts that lie. It upends the notion that I am self-sufficient, that I can work hard enough to please God, that, that would allow God to maybe look the other way at the things I've done wrong and say, well, why don't you just kind of go ahead and come on in here into heaven? It disrupts that silly notion. It also uh, upends the nonsensical notion that this life is all there is. It disrupts our confusion and our darkness, and in short, it brings clarity and truth and life. This is what Jesus claimed in his earthly ministry, but then Jesus died. Jesus was, it appeared, defeated by his enemies. It appeared that Jesus was outwitted by evil, and it could appear, and those who lived through that experience probably thought that death put an end to all of this that there ultimately was no powerful love outside of the human race, and that, that Jesus' love was snuffed out when he went to the cross. Jesus said a lot of things that were disruptive in his earthly ministry, but the thing that he said that was probably uh, the, the, the one that ought to get your attention more than any other statement that Jesus made was this. I'm going to Jerusalem, and he told this to his friends. He said it very publicly to them, so he made no mistake about it. He says it several times to them. I'm going to Jerusalem, and here's what's going to happen in Jerusalem. I'm going to be turned over to my enemies. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to die. That wasn't the, the crazy notion. What came after that was what should get everybody's attention. And on the third day, I'm going to get up out of the grave. On the third day, I am going to rise. Now, I, I have friends who have gone through hard times. I have people who I love who have passed away due to illness and disease or accident or whatever the case may be. And in the days leading up to those moments, those people never said, don't worry, I'll be back in three days. When Jesus said this, you have to put yourself into that, that situation and, and think about it in, in terms of what you and I consider to be normal. That's either one of two things. It's either the Son of God speaking about what only God can do, or it's a statement of an absolute lunatic. And if it's a statement of a lunatic, we have no business basing our lives on anything he said. I have friends who are not believers that you say, you know, Jesus said some good things. That all love your neighbors, yourself, and, and be generous to other people. Those are kind of nice things. Not if he's not God. Because if he's not God and that statement's a statement of a lunatic, everything else he says is wrong. The disruptive love of Christ speaks in a way that insists that we grapple with this notion. And you could think in a moment, in the moment of Jesus' death, that it had all ended. But this disruptive statement, of, I'll rise again. The resurrection, if true, validates the disruptive love of Jesus, and it's a game changer. It changes the question to not what is the love of Jesus, but what will I do in response to this disruptive love of Christ? What is my reaction? Will you pray with me for just a moment? Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that you would speak to us. We're gathered here together, both inside and outside, uh, enjoying a beautiful spring day, uh, Resurrection Sunday, uh, Easter we call it an opportunity to be with friends and with family, to uh, enjoy some, some downtime. Lord, I pray that as, as we uh, pause now and we turn our hearts and our minds to your word and we consider this disruptive love that has invaded all of history and all of humanity, that you would teach us what you want us to know. 
We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds, whether we go to church every Sunday and we're a lifelong disciple of yours or we've never set foot uh, in a church before or somewhere in between those two. Would the, the powerful love of Jesus penetrate deeply into our hearts and our minds this morning? Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me be a hindrance or in the way of your teaching today. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think the text that we're going to look at this morning, which is in Matthew 27 and Matthew 28, uh, gives us four possible reactions to the disruptive love of Jesus. And for those of you that are here on a regular basis, you're like, why didn't you read the scripture up front? It's because we're going to read a lot of it. So I'm going to break it down into four bite-sized pieces, and we're just going to read it as we go. Because each one of these four passages, beginning towards the end of chapter 27, lay out a potential response to the disruptive love of Jesus. The first potential response is the response of skepticism and rejection, which, which leads to suppression of the truth. In Matthew 27, it's the day after Jesus has died, and his enemies are, are finished gloating over their apparent victory, and now they're planning to make sure that that victory goes all the way through to the end. And they remember this crazy statement that Jesus made. They remember that he said, you know what? Three days after I die, I'm popping up out of the grave. And so they go to the local magistrate, and we pick up the story there. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. And they said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, soldiers, go. Make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. What's going on here? What's going on here is a skepticism about Jesus. The Pharisees were convinced that Jesus was nuts that he was crazy, that he was a lunatic. They, they had tried to take his life a couple of times before and have been unsuccessful. And now that they've been successful in their understanding, they're going to make sure to seal the deal. And so their skepticism has led them to a rejection of the notion that Jesus was God and he would rise from the dead. And so they are going to work to suppress that uh, that statement and make sure it doesn't come true. They're unconvinced, and, and being unconvinced leads to an outright refusal to accept any notion that this could be true, and it leads to an effort exerted against the love of Christ. Look what they call him, an imposter, that he's leading a fraud. Therefore, we need to, to seal it and make sure we guard the tomb. So notice their attitude. Their attitude is one of skepticism, and it's one of rejection, but it leads them to an action. It leads them to suppress the possibility that this could be true. And now that's very natural. Your attitude about any particular topic, my attitude about any particular issue is going to lead to a certain type of action. I got really, really excited last night around 8.30 or so when the Blues finished off that game. And trust me, there's going to be another Blues illustration in the sermon, all right? My attitude towards the Blues led me to stand up and cheer. Back, back it up to Thursday night 
when they scored the goal with 17 seconds to go at about what? That was like at about 10, 15 at night. And I'm downstairs in the living room yelling and screaming. And I go upstairs and Cindy looks at me like I'm crazy. She's like, what are you yelling about? And I said, well, don't worry. I recorded it on this TV too. Let me show you. And I pulled it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It, it. it was amazing. My attitude led to my actions. The way you think, the way I think leads to the way we act. Perhaps you've, you've heard of James Aducci. If you haven't heard of James Aducci before this week, there's no surprise because he really wasn't anybody special until uh, about a week ago, today, about an hour from now. Uh, James Aducci, a couple weeks ago on a Tuesday, it'll be two weeks ago this coming Tuesday, living in Wisconsin, just an average ordinary guy like, like us, got on a plane in Milwaukee and he flew to Las Vegas with $85,000 in his pocket. And he went and he found uh, a betting house and he placed a bet. And he didn't place a bunch of, like he didn't place, you know, 10,000 here and 12,000. He took all 85,000, he put it down in one bet and the bet had 14 to one odds and the bet was this, Tiger Woods will win the Masters. Everybody's like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> right? He went back in the plane, flew back to Milwaukee with $1.2 million in his pocket. His attitude about Tiger led to his action. But I don't think he's really the story. I think the story is actually a guy named Joe Asher. And Joe Asher lives and works in Las Vegas, and he's the CEO of a company that's a, a, a booking. They, they take bets. They take legal bets. And Joe Asher is a big Tiger Woods skeptic. Let me rephrase. Joe Asher was a big Tiger Woods skeptic. And, and, and uh, uh, James walks in. He says, I want to place this bet. And they call Joe. The, the guy at the desk calls Joe on the phone. He says, what do we do? He's like, oh, my goodness. Take that bet. <laughs> All right. His attitude cost him a whole lot of money because he acted on his attitude. Are you sure you want to bet your eternal soul on the notion that the resurrection didn't take place? Are you confident enough in your skepticism, which will lead to an action of unbelief that will bear itself out in your life? These enemies of Jesus could not let go of their skepticism. Jesus is in the, in the tomb, and they're betting that the resurrection will not take place, but they're also working against it. That's one reaction that you and I can have to the disruptive love of Jesus. But there's a second reaction that's possible, and that's found in chapter 28, the first 10 verses. And now we're at Sunday, what we call Sunday morning, early in the morning, uh, before the sun has even come up. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. They're going to, to make sure that they know where Jesus is so they can come and anoint and care for his corpse and, and at least do him some honor and dignity as he's laid to rest. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled, <coughs> excuse me, and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. See, I've told you. 
So he departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Another possible reaction to the disruptive love of Jesus is to receive and embrace that disruptive love for yourself. They departed from the tomb after they have met this angel, and it says, with fear and great joy. How can you be fearful and filled with great joy all at the same time? Well, the notion of fear, there's the, the notion of this is, this is too good to be true. It's the notion of being emotionally overwhelmed. Uh, you know, so again, if you've ever, you know, seen, you know, the, I hate to say something nice, but the Cubs, they're, they're celebrating, they're jumping into each other's arms. Why? Because they're overwhelmed with what's happened. They're, they're emotionally uh, connected in a deep way. And so it leads to the sense of joy. It's like, can this really be happening to us? And when they realize that it is true, when they realize that it has happened, when they meet Jesus face to face, they, they fall at his feet. And they, and they grasp his, his ankles, so to speak, and they prostrate themselves and they worship him. They lose all sense of how you're supposed to behave. Lose all sense of, you know, is, is this proper for two good Jewish women to do this? They, they lose all of that. And they literally fall at his feet and worship him. Why? Because they simply can't help themselves. I told you there'd be another hockey illustration. The sermon here it comes. On February the 20th, my buddy Bob Colette and I are going to the Blues game. Tuesday night. And the Blues have won 10 games in a row. And if they win the 11th game in a row, they will set a franchise record. And so we are, we are all excited because we really thought the season was a bust and nothing good was going to happen. So Bob and I happen to have tickets to this game. So we go, and we're in the, in the stadium, and they play a great game, and they hang on by their fingertips, but they win in overtime. And they win in overtime. And now Bob and I are sitting in this row, and we're right next to each other. Bob and I and I have known each other for a long time. We've known each other since around 2001, 2002. We're high-fiving, we're hugging, we're going crazy. But there are strangers to our right and strangers to our left and strangers in front of us and strangers behind us. And when we get done high-fiving and hugging, we turn to people we do not know. And we grab each other. And we're hugging. And we're high-fiving. I think one woman kissed me on the cheek. We're just, we're, we're going crazy. Because we're overwhelmed with joy. Our emotions just like, we, we got to do it. We got to be so happy that this has happened for our beloved blues because we know eventually in April or May they'll disappoint us. But <laughs> these women know no disappointment, nor will they ever know any disappointment. This is the risen Christ. This is a disruptive love that is now born again by the Father's power. They receive and they embrace this love. There's a third response that actually builds on the first response of skepticism. We come back to the enemies of Jesus and we pick up on their story in chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, where Matthew records this. While they, the, the two ladies, are now going to find the disciples, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. Now think about this for a minute. Let, understand this correctly. What's everything that has taken place? There's been an earthquake. There has been an angel that looks like he's emblazoned in lightning and has perfectly white, glorious garments on, and he has superhuman strength because he walks up to a giant rock that is sealed, and he pushes it out of the way, and he plops down on top of it like you or I would move a chair like that and sit down on it. That's how much strength he exerted. 
and the, and the guard, and Jesus walks out of the tomb. Jesus is risen, and the guards faint with fear. And now it says, now it's later, I don't know, half an hour later, hour, whatever, and what do they do? Some of them go to town, and they find the, the people who told them to guard, and they tell them all that had happened. Put yourself in that situation. You've been dead set against Jesus. You've done all you can to make sure that nobody fabricates the resurrection, and now you hear that it's actually taken place. And they assembled the elders, and they taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said to them, tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him. In other words, if your boss finds out about it and, and he's going to get mad at you, we'll pay him off too. Don't worry about that. We'll keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has spread among the Jews to this day. This is now after the fact. This is now with all of the information that I've just shared with you, and there is a complete refusal to accept the reality of the situation. I would call this a stubborn antagonism. Unless we be tempted to say, oh, those terrible, awful elders and chief priests, we would never do such a thing. Let us just pause for a moment and think of everything that we've been taught about Scripture, especially for those of us who have been believers for a while. Think of having the Bible at our fingertips all of our lives. And think about the patterns of sin in our life that, that keep cropping up. Lest we become self-righteous and judgmental against these folks, I think we ought to be very, very careful to understand that it is only God's grace that transforms our lives. Otherwise, we will be right there refusing to accept the reality and living lives that are based on lies and, and in this case, based on, on bribes. In uh, March of 1973... Richard Nixon had gathered a small group of his leadership team around him in the Oval Office on the 22nd of March, and they had had a strategy meeting because the Watergate investigation was full tilt and things were not looking very good uh, for Nixon and for uh, the sitting government. At the end of that meeting, everybody left except for John Mitchell, who was the acting attorney general of the United States at that particular moment. And what later became known as the Nixon tapes recorded Richard Nixon, the President of the United States, saying the following to his Attorney General, talking about the Watergate investigation. I want you all to stonewall it. Plead the Fifth Amendment if you have to. Cover up or, uh, cover up or anything else that needs to be done if it will save the plan. That's the whole point. That's living a lie in the face of reality. Less than a month later, on April the 17th, Richard Nixon stood before the press corps in the White House press briefing room, and he said the following, I condemn any attempts to cover up this case, no matter who is involved. That's living outside of the reality of the situation, but being so sold and committed to a pathway that you can't turn from it. Friends, that's where my skepticism and your skepticism can lead. We refuse the disruptive love of Christ. There will be another disruption in our soul, and it will be a disruption that brings us into the darkness, that brings us to a place of unbelief, that brings us to a place where our souls are in mortal danger. But that is a response that is, that is possible as a reaction to the disruptive love of Christ. But there's one more. I said there were four. There's one more this morning. It comes in the last few verses of chapter 8. Uh, Jesus told his guys, hey, go to Galilee, I'll see you there, and now we're, we're at that spot. 
And at the end of Matthew 28, it says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, even though some, some doubted. They were still overwhelmed with this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, there's a little bit more to that, and you, you know if you've studied, there's a little bit more, but I'm going to stop it there for our purposes this morning. Jesus uh, recommends a response. <laughs> Jesus says, I, I, I have a response you should have for my disruptive love. And the response I think you should have is that our relationship, you should receive this love that I'm giving you, and our relationship should define your life. It should define your existence in every aspect of your life, in your work, in your marriage, in your parenting. Wherever you go, this relationship should be the defining relationship of your life. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be onlookers of salvation. I want you to be ambassadors for salvation. Go and make disciples. Go and tell other people about this disruptive love that I've, that I've shown. It's not just for you. It's for the entire world. It's for Green Tree Community Church in 2019 on Easter Sunday morning and everybody that's gathered there. Jesus re re recommends a response that takes us from being casual acquaintances or, or slight friends to being blood brothers and sisters committed to the very end to the proposition that God has loved us through his son and through his death and resurrection, he's paid the price for our sins and we can have an eternal relationship with him. Jesus responded recommendation, a response recommendation takes us from being just casual believers to lifelong disciples. Does Jesus love define my life? Does the disruptive love of Jesus define yours? It doesn't mean we'll get it right every time. It doesn't mean we won't make mistakes, but it means that we begin to live lives of the redeemed, that we understand that even in the midst of the storm, and if you had your phone on on the way to church this morning, perhaps you heard uh, over 200 Christians were murdered in Sri Lanka earlier today as they were in houses of worship, praising God. Even in moments of that kind of hatred and anger, we can be confident in the love that Christ has for us. We have a living hope because the disruptive love of Jesus is true. We have not only a living hope, but we have an assurance and we have a peace that passes all understanding because the disruptive love of Christ has captured our lives and holds on to us and will never let us go for all eternity. Jesus has loved us with a disruptive love. His Resurrection validates that. What will be our response? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us in Christ and disrupting our existence with the truth of your gospel that says that we are lost and broken people, but there is a new and living and eternal hope in a relationship with the Lord Jesus. We thank you that the crucifixion was not the end but it was, the, it was the part of the journey that had to be traveled in order for us to be forgiven, in order for us to experience the joy of resurrection morning and embrace it for our own. Because when you raised Jesus from the dead, you validated that all who put their faith in him will have life eternal. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your disruptive love. We pray that it would define our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. 
Uh, before we uh, go, we're going to sing a little bit more because you got to sing on Easter Sunday morning. Before we sing, I want us to uh, remember what we believe. I want us to confess together out loud what we believe. We're going to use the Apostles' Creed, which has been around uh, for a couple thousand years, and it really succinctly describes our faith. So I ask you to stand with me if you would, and let's read together. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please remain standing and let's sing together. <laughs> 